Welcome, Daniel chapter four. Why don't you grab your Bible and turn there at this time. When I was a kid growing up in the church, um, I remember uh, there was kind of a season where it was really, really the thing to do where everybody you know, was sharing their testimony. And you know, being a part of the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s and you know, kind of the, a lot of these kind of hippies that were coming out of the drug thing, you know, and uh, I, I just remember there was, especially in the, in the area that I was at, there was just all kinds of people that had these radical testimonies. Um, you know, these stories of, they, you know, they were living on Haight-Ashbury Street there in San Francisco and, uh, you know, were uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and they killed people. And then they accepted Jesus when they saw a cross on the wall and, a, you know, and maybe it was a little too much drugs and they just saw a cross, and, uh, but, but it was enough to save them. Uh, maybe it was the Lord, maybe it was supernatural, but man, all these radical, maybe you older people remember that era where it was all about your testimony. And I remember as a kid, you know, just thinking, man, I wish I had a testimony. You know, I was a kid that I accepted Jesus at five years old. I wish I, I was selling crack, you know, man. Bummer. I didn't have like a, I didn't have like a great testimony. I, I, I was a horrible sinner. And then I accepted the Lord at five, five years old. Um, but, you know, by the way, if you have one of those testimonies, that's good too. I think there needs to be, you know, the, the testimony of people who, who just met the Lord early. And uh, the Lord kind of bypassed a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that the world throws at him. But for those of you who were saved early, like me in kindergarten, you know, um, and I, even before kindergarten, I was, you know, going to church and had parents teaching me about the Bible. It was five years old where I was, it wasn't hard to convince me I was a sinner. Uh, I knew that at five pretty easily, you know. Uh, yeah, a lot of us were kind of that way. But, but all that to say, I wouldn't trade my testimony for anybody's. Because, uh, because I, you know, I've been able to see for my whole life just how good the Lord is in other people's lives. And, and you know, I'd rather learn from other people, I think, than, than have to go through it all myself. Um, you know, I never have once, you know, craved going to, you know, be, be drinking alcohol because I've just seen how much destruction that brings. For me, it's not a got to, it's a get to. Uh, just because I've had a lot of friends and people. I've had the same thing with drugs. I mean, some of my friends that, you know, were saved back in the 70s and had horrible LSD trips, to this day, they're struggling um, with their brain and mental stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, there's, there's a price to be paid, you know, for our sins, re re repercussions of our sins. But good news, the Lord's, that's why I think testimony was so powerful is because even the worst of sinners, you know, the Lord can save. So, the Lord is good no matter what. Well, in our text today, we have somebody sharing their testimony, kind of like the old days. Uh, and this guy was a pretty bad dude. I think when you're chopping people up into pieces, uh, and, and I think that some of the stuff Nebuchadnezzar did would make Charles Manson blush, you know? I mean, like, uh, Nebi was a horrible dude. Um, but this guy's, we're gonna see him kind of share his testimony here. And I think it's gonna be uh, an encouragement to all of us. Um, and it's amazing to think that I think we're gonna see Nebi in heaven uh, someday. Uh, that's what a strange thing that's gonna be to see this you know, ancient Babylonian king who may have been the most powerful guy ever, some people argue. Um, by the way, if you're studying history, this is Nebuchadnezzar II, historically, as, as, as it goes. But, um, but the Bible just calls him Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the, the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's take a look at this. It says in verse one of chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. That's a pretty big audience right there. Um, Nebi, he's got a message to say to everyone that lives on the planet. And, and it's funny because he gets this, this stage here, both at that time, but he gets the stage, here we are in you know, Portland, Oregon in 2021, reading his testimony. Uh, like this is one of the biggest testimonies ever. Uh, that gets a lot of press uh, and, and all the nations, languages and tongues are gonna hear his testimony. Um, all that dwell in the earth. And then he says, peace be multiplied unto you. Now this is where it, it's almost, you know, if you're a Bible student, this, this is almost funny because, you know, suddenly this guy who was chopping people up and making their houses into piles of manure, burning them on barbecue grills, all that stuff, you know, it's, it's interesting that be, because 
Uh, he was such a horrible guy, but now he's saying, peace be multiplied to all you guys. Like suddenly he's like, you know, uh, Mr. Peace, the guy that wanted to throw people in fire furnaces and stuff. Um, but even more comical, he sounds like one of the, the epistles of the New Testament. Do you know what I mean? Peace be multiplied. Does anybody remember who said that? Peter, Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter one, verse uh, two. And he also said it in 2 Peter chapter one, verse two. Peace be multiplied unto you. And I think Paul said it too. Uh, but, but it's funny that Peter used that phrase in both of his epistles, as it turns out, uh, which is kind of cool. So here's, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, peace be multiplied unto you. He, he sounds like a different guy. And, and by the way, that's gonna be a sign of someone who's really been saved or you know, transformed, is, is there gonna, there's gonna be a difference about them. And uh, that's kind of an important part of, I think, what the Lord does. You're not saved by your works, but remember, when you are saved, um, you're, you're, you're gonna see a change because you know, faith without works is dead. And, and we're gonna see that even in Nebuchadnezzar's language. It's gonna change quite drastically. Um, by the way, let's just remember this. In the Old Testament, what would make a person saved? Was it to confess Jesus as your personal savior? No. The Old Testament, that was before Jesus came and died on the cross. So what would it, let me, let me give you kind of a cheat, and some of you already know the answer to this, but the cheat is um, if you wanted to be declared righteous uh, or have you, your life counted as righteousness, what were you responsible to do at that point in the Old Testament? Anybody? Right, believe God. Not just believe in God. Uh, like I said before, Satan believes in God. Um, but to believe God. Um, and, and remember Abraham, you know, we were told there in Genesis 12, you know, Abraham believed God and so it counted to him righteousness. And then even in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans makes the case that it's the same belief, only to believe God in the Old Testament, the difference in the new is to see, believe God's plan for all of humanity as it unfolds that salvation would come through Jesus Christ. So Abraham was still saved by Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It's just that because he was before Christ, he had to believe God and God's plan in the, you know, the time of the Old Testament. That was what you were required to just believe God. Um, did you have to be perfect? Well, good, good news. Uh, no, uh, Abraham was not perfect. Abraham sinned and made mistakes and, and most of the Old Testament characters were sinful people just like you and just like me, but because they believed God, it was counted unto them as righteousness and the New Testament doctrine of imputed righteousness is what, we, what we're all saved by. This. It's the same, it's just that we know the mechanics behind the believing God. We as New Testament believers know the mechanics is the cross of Jesus Christ who died for the sins of the whole world, past, present, future, for all time. So, so Nebuchadnezzar is a believer in God and that's why we're gonna see him in heaven. And we're gonna see how that kind of comes about. Um, thus far, just a reminder, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has, has come close. Uh, he said some statements, you know, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and they're delivered from the fiery furnace, you know. Remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar makes some de declaration. He says, you know, uh, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he doesn't say, and my God too. He doesn't say that. So he's not saved. He's not a believer in God or a believer of God uh, in chapter three. We're gonna see that change in chapter four. Um, even when Daniel interprets the dream in uh, chapter two, um, if you remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar kind of you know, makes the statement, he falls down and starts to worship Daniel. Remember that? Oh, Daniel, he starts, I mean, here's this king worshiping Daniel. And then he, and he says, you know, of a truth, your God is a God, a God of gods, a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets. secrets. He, he wasn't at that place saying, your, my God is the only God. He's just acknowledging that he's a God. So he's not at this place where he just believes God. To believe God means you have to believe everything he says. Um, you know, Isaiah the prophet made it clear, there's only one God, there's no other uh, like me. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no other God like me. And, um, and, and there's no other true God, the Bible says. So Nebi hasn't come to that belief yet until chapter four, and he's gonna kind of share that testimony. So just a clarification on what saved a person in the Old Testament. That's kind of important to know. Um, and it's important because it still carries on into the, to the New Testament as well, that same belief. 
Well, he says, peace be multiplied unto you. Verse two, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. See, now he's starting to talk like, like a believer in the true and living God. Because um, all this is true. God, he's always was, always has been, always will be. The eternal nature of God. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Like he's really starting to kind of get it here. But uh, then he's gonna start with his testimony in verse four. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of sugar plums in my head. No, sorry, I'm sorry, made that part up. Uh, the thoughts upon my bed and the visions upon my head troubled me. Um, isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar's got everything, power, you know, he's got prestige, um, you know, he's got a position of high authority. Like King Nebuchadnezzar's got everything a guy could ever want as the king of kings there of that day. But he just has a dream and now he's troubled. Uh, it's funny because he was flourishing in his palace. He's doing great, living large, when suddenly he has a dream and now he's troubled and the vision of his head troubled him greatly. Um, isn't it interesting that I think that's really oftentimes the case. When you see someone who's living large and they've got everything a person could want, um, don't, don't always assume that they must be really happy. Uh, you know, we look at a lot of the Hollywood celebrities who have everything they want, all the money that anybody could ever ask for, and, and, and they, they appear to be living large and happy and healthy and wealthy and wise, but oftentimes they're some of the most troubled people on the earth. You know, the greater the riches, the greater the worry. Uh, it's a funny thing, that you, and you can't really tell, a, you know, what a book is by its cover as it goes with people, and especially as it, as it goes to be people being troubled or bummed out, I think we oftentimes make assumptions that are often very incorrect. It's like, uh, it's like you know, you, let's say you're sitting out on a waterfront park there in downtown Portland and what used to be um, not a war zone, but it was actually pretty at one point. Well, anyway, you could sit there and watch some of these fancy boats come in. Uh, I remember one time in uh, 4th of July, Deb and I were watching some of these fancy boats, these kind of yachts come in. And, you know, you see the one guy, man, he's got the big fancy boat and he's, he's got the cigar and he's up there just, you know, got, got everything. You can tell the guy's just filthy rich and he's got girls and music and it's a party boat and he's just kind of, yeah, like the guy. And you think, I wonder what's going on in his brain. Then you got the guy over on the side with a weed eater and he's weed eating and he's got a pickup truck and it's got his landscape company sign on the truck and he's got his headphones on and he's there weed eating and, and he stops and he looks out at the yacht as it's floating by. What are they thinking? Well, we don't really know. But, but you know what, wouldn't it be something if we could kind of get a glimpse, like if you really get the shot, what, what the guy is, the guy is like, actually, He's, he's, he was wealthy, but his company is going through a hostile takeover and he's worried that his wife will find out about the girls on the yacht and he's trying to figure out that, how they're gonna keep from foreclosing on his yacht and, uh, and he's stressed out because he's got liver you know, problems because of how much alcohol he's been drinking and uh, he's just there worried, looking cool with a cigar, but he's got throat cancer also because he's been smoking cigars too long. He's worried about dying. The guy with the weed eater? Well, he's there with his headphones on, listening to Pastor Brett. <laughs> Podcast. And he's just thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. And he's thinking, you know, I, I, when, I, when I get enough money, I'm gonna go on the mission field and I'm gonna go serve the Lord and I'm paying off all my bills so I'm liquid and I can move quickly and, and man, I, I'm just gonna mow a few more lawns and get a few more you know, landscaping chores done and then man, I'm gonna go on the mission. Like who knows what's going on in a person's brain? But I, I think oftentimes, you know, the world puts up a pretty big front of how awesome everything is. 
But I think there's a lot of troubled people out there. You know, in this last year and a half, there's been a lot of uglinesses come out of people's mouths, especially famous people. Have you noticed that? Wealthy, famous, powerful people. It's kind of like, they say, you know what's in a, 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 you know, a glass when, when you tip it over. Uh, you know, you, you know, people are like, you know, uh, you know uh, tea bags. You, know, you, you don't know what they are until you put them in hot water. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of what, what, what goes on here. Nebuchadnezzar is this guy that should be as happy as anybody gets, but he, he's just got this troubled spirit within him. And, and guess who's doing that? God is doing that. God is troubling him with a dream that's meant to be troubling. Um, that's kind of an interesting situation. I think the Lord does this more often than we'd like to even acknowledge have you ever wondered if some of the things that have troubled you, the Lord's just saying, hey, I want you to come and seek me. I want you to look to me. So who do you go to when you're troubled? Well, who, who does, think about this. At this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, who do you go to if you're Nebuchadnezzar for help? Um, well, let's see who he goes to. And this is kind of interesting if you ask me. It says, you know, after the visions of his head troubles him, verse six, therefore I made a decree to bring all in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the Psychic Friends Network, and, no, sorry, I added that one too, sorry. Uh, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. When's Nebuchadnezzar gonna learn? Like, if, if I'm Nebi at this point, I think I'd forget all the soothsayers, Chaldeans, wise men of Babylon, forget them, get me Daniel, get him right away. Like, isn't that what you do? Because Daniel was the only guy in chapter two that could interpret the dream. The problem is time. A lot of time has gone by and Nebuchadnezzar kind of forgets. The guy that's the interpreter of the dreams, that's the dude that knows the true and living God. I should be asking him. But he doesn't, even, he, he doesn't even ask for Daniel. He just says, get all the wise men together. Now, some of you might be saying, well, where's Daniel? Why, Daniel was supposed to be in charge of these guys by now. Where's Daniel? I have a theory. I have a theory, and that is this. I think Daniel was sanctified. That's a, that's a Christianese word. What does the word sanctified mean? Anybody? To be set apart, to be outside of something else. Daniel was a guy who, I don't think he just hung with the Chaldeans and the soothsayers and the magicians and all those guys. I don't think Daniel was comfortable with those guys. Why? Because he was a believer in the true and living God and he wasn't hanging with these guys. So that when the memo goes out, hey, King Nebi wants us all in his palace. He's got another one of these dreams. Daniel doesn't even get the memo on this. He's not even there, even though he was put in charge of them back in chapter two. Come ye out from among them and be ye separate. That's what the Bible calls us as Christians to be, separate from the world. It's a, it's a funny thing how there's this temptation for us as Christians to sort of blend in and be like the world and be hip and relevant. Uh, that's one of the, the words I think the church has stumbled into and it's not helping the church. We need to be more relevant. No, the Bible is relevant. The world is totally out to lunch. So the more we try to link to the world, the more irrelevant we are. And the more we try to follow the Bible, the more relevant we'll be. Like it's a funny um, backwards sort of way of thinking that we as uh, largely as a church has adopted. We're gonna be, we're gonna try to be more relevant. We're gonna fit in with the world. We'll try to make the church sort of attract the world. Big mistake. The father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the Bible says. God is looking for people who aren't relevant with the world, but are seeking to worship him in spirit and in truth. Ah, oh, forget trying to be relevant. Daniel says, I'm not gonna be mixing it up with these guys. And so I think that's why, A, he was not in the, we talked about this last week, you know, in the fiery furnace uh, chapter, in chapter three, where was Daniel? And we mentioned that it's a great picture because Daniel's not there. As we were comparing the various parts of Daniel chapter three to the, the end time scenario of the tribulation period, the fiery trial, and how the Jews would go through the fire but not be burned. And where was Daniel? Well, in these stories of the Old Testament, there's always somebody who was taken out and wasn't there. I believe that's a beautiful picture of God's church who will be raptured to be taken up out. Just like Enoch was taken out 
not even dying, not even seeing death. Enoch was taken out before the flood. Noah and his family went through the flood. That's the Jews who will go through the tribulation, but God will protect them. Just like he protected Noah, just like he protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in these stories, there's always somebody absent. Daniel was absent. Now, maybe he was off doing some ambassador work or something somewhere far off in a distant land. We don't know where Daniel was in Daniel chapter three. But it's funny that Daniel chapter four picks up and Daniel's just kind of left out of the story so far. And, and now we, we, we finally get the information to Daniel. The Chaldeans, the soothsayer magicians, once again, could not give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of his dream. And so where's Daniel? Well, that's where we pick it up in verse eight. But at the last, finally, da 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 da, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy gods, and before him I told the dream, saying. Now, before he tells Daniel the dream, remember, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he gave them the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this was part of that assimilation process. The Babylonians would try to get, get these boys to become more Babylonian. So all of those names had something to do with Babylonian gods. Um, it's funny that Nebuchadnezzar here at this part of the story says, you know, I brought before me who, the guy who's named Belteshazzar. That's the name I gave him after the god Bel, um, uh, as it turns out. Now, by the way, um, when, when it comes to these gods of Babylon, there were many gods of Babylon. They actually had all kinds of um, ways of worshiping God. But Belteshazzar, his name means Bel is prince. So the prince god of Bel was what basically Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel. Um, and, and you gotta understand, this verse eight is a description of Nebuchadnezzar's you know, worldview before uh, he gets saved, that he was calling Daniel after the name of my God. That was his God during the time of the story being told. And so he tells him the dream in verse nine. O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians. Um, again, this is a dumb thing to say because uh, Daniel was not the master of the magi magicians. Um, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods, again, wrong. Like, like he's so whacked out on all of his worldview. Uh, but he says, I know uh, that the Holy Spirit of the gods is in thee and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I, may, that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and the height thereof was great. Now, this is an interesting thing because um, a tree... Uh, in the midst of the earth. The idea is a huge tree that's kind of right there in the middle of the earth and, and this is a big, tr big tree. Um, as it turns out, did you know that outside of the Bible, there's all kinds of things that we have archeologically that we found about Nebuchadnezzar. There's these writing on these stones and cylinders and it talks all about Nebuchadnezzar II. One of the things he was obsessed with, as it turns out, are trees. Brad, he would have fit right in Portland, man. Tree hugging Nebuchadnezzar, man. Uh, is that what he was? Well, it's interesting because uh, in the, um, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar, in writing about his prayers to the God of Merodach, uh, it's written on stone. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's prayers to Merodach. Um, but in his prayers, Nebi was um, often obsessed with trees. And there's actually a, a, a depiction uh, that you can find, even if you Google it, you can find it. It's a little hard to find, but where there's a depiction of Nebuchadnezzar pulling a tree out by its roots um, because he was so tough and amazing, he could pull a tree out. Uh, and it was, a, it was a cedar of Lebanon. Now, as it turns out, uh, Nebuchadnezzar historically went to Lebanon just to see the trees of Lebanon. That's, that's a historical fact. It's not from the Bible. It's, it's one of the things written in, in the archeological finds on these writings of ancient things. Um, and most scholars say, man, they don't know why he was obsessed with a tree. I think the Bible tells us why he was obsessed with trees. And it's this dream that he had that troubles him. And in the same way, remember when Nebi had the dream of the statue of the head of gold, arms of silver, belly brass, legs of iron, you know, it was about his destruction. 
He tried to defy that by saying, I'm gonna build a statue of pure gold, Daniel chapter three, and I'm gonna show that my kingdom will be everlasting. It's like he was in rebellion against the dream God gave him in Daniel two, 23 years later. So this obsession with trees, extra biblical literature, it, it might just be because of this dream that he had about the tree that's troubled him greatly. And so he goes up to Lebanon and says, I'm gonna pull the trees out by their roots. I'm gonna show my strength against the, the tree. What was wrong with him? Uh, he, was, he was obsessed with trees. And the, the big debate is whether he was obsessed before this dream or after this dream or because of this dream. We don't know the answer to that. But he was, in fact, obsessed with trees and, and he was kind of afraid of them. And he was wanting to sort of defy, defy the power of a mighty tree. That's, that's the weird part about history as it goes, but the Bible gives us this little snapshot. So he sees this tree in the midst of the earth and, and um, the height thereof was great. Verse 11, the tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto heaven and the sight thereof was to the end of all the earth. This is a massive, massive tree. Verse 12, the leaves thereof were fair and the fruit thereof was much and in it was meat for all. Um, the beasts of the field had shadow under it and the fowls of heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof and all flesh was fed of it. Now this is an interesting um, picture. I, I have this picture in my head from one of my trips to Africa. When you fly into Africa from Paris, France, you fly over the Sahara Desert and you don't realize how huge the Sahara is until you fly over it you know, in a 747. Like it's just hours of flying over just rolling sand. And it's, it's pretty amazing. But I'll never forget watching once in a while as you get closer to west middle of Africa and you're getting toward the southern edge of the Sahara, you start to see a tree. Like even from the airplane, you can see, oh, there's a, I think I see a tree down there. And then, and then as you get fly for another half hour, oh, there's like two trees in the near, five trees, and they start getting thicker and thicker. And by the time you get to Burkina Faso, there's, there's a few sprinklings of big trees here and there. But I remember, I remember driving from uh, Ouagadougou to, what was the name of that place? I think it was called Bobo. <laughs> and, um, I, um, and I drove up north and we went to this place where there was only a few trees. It was right on the edge of the Sahara Desert. But it was so funny how the, all the animals, you know, it's really hot there in Burkina Faso, all the animals would find that one tree. All the cows would like crowd underneath the tree just to get into the shade. And all the birds for miles, it was like the only tree for miles. So they would just all crunch under there. And it's, it's actually kind of a funny scene. I, every time you'd see a tree, shade was a, a valuable commodity there in that heat. And, and every time I read this story, I kind of picture that. It's like, this is the only tree on the earth and it reaches to the sky, Nebuchadnezzar says, and all the creatures of earth come and eat the meat or the fruit of the tree and are taken in by the shade of this tree. It's, it's the tree that nourishes. Um, this is what he sees. Um, so uh, he, he says, all flesh was fed of it, verse 12. And verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed and behold a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, with, uh, in, pardon me, brass in the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with dew of heaven. And let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given to him. And let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth to it whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the beast, uh, pardon me, the basest of men. Verse 18, this dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof for as much as all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation. But thou art able for the spirit of the holy gods, eh, wrong again, the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Uh, it's the only God is in thee. But all that to say, he sees this crazy tree cut down um, 
And, um, and you kind of think, okay, this is, a, this is a weird dream, but, but for some reason, this dream greatly troubles him. He knows that it's something. Now, who are the watchers in this? There's kind of an interesting thing here. It's, it says in verse 13, um, I saw the visions in my head upon my bed, and behold, the, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. Um, so there's debate, you know, on who's the watcher, but most believe this is probably an angel. You'll see in your reference uh, there probably, some of you have a marked reference Bible, uh, Psalm 103 verse 20 um, speaks of um, the angels do the work that God wants to do. And um, the Holy One here could be the Lord himself uh, that's making the watcher keep an eye on the tree and eventually cut down the tree. Um, but that's kind of a language that you have to be careful about um, whenever you say it's someone who's holy. There's only one who's truly holy. So the watcher is probably an angel. The holy one is probably the Lord himself. And if he came down from heaven in his dream, maybe this is another vision of, of Jesus uh, pre-incarnate, like we saw in chapter three in the fiery furnace. So interesting that Nebuchadnezzar sees this and, uh, and he's troubled by it. Well, what is Daniel's response? This is where it gets interesting. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour. Um, astonished is the word that we would use there. Um, he just sat there just stunned, you know, um, and, and said nothing for a whole hour. Um, Nebuchadnezzar senses, there, man, there's something really wrong uh, with, with poor, poor Daniel, like he's really troubled. And so Nebi tries to step up and comfort Daniel. Uh, by this time, I'm wondering, just, just something for you to think about, could it be that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are sort of friends? Um, and, and I wanna suggest that because, um, you know, Jesus was called the friend of sinners and Jesus was one who uh, would hang out with sinners, but, but he wasn't like the sinners. He didn't do what the sinners did and eventually the sinners would become saved. Uh, that's the mark. If you're saying, Brett, I'm just hanging out with sinners. I go to the bar every night with my buddies, um, hanging out with sinners like Jesus did. Hey, as long as they're all, you know, turning to Christ and you know, dumping off their, all their sins and becoming holy, then you're being like Jesus. Uh, it's a funny thing. Well, I wonder if Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are sort of friends. Check this out. Daniel just sits there astonished for an hour and check out what the king says. Um, and it says, well, it says he's astonished for an hour and his thoughts troubled him. So Daniel's deeply troubled by what he's just heard. And it says the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Like, it's okay, Daniel, it's gonna be all right, even though Nebuchadnezzar himself was troubled by the dream. He's saying, Daniel, you know, it's gonna be all right. And Daniel's like, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, you have no idea what you're about to hear. It's gonna be bad, it's gonna get ugly. But Nebi's like, it's gonna be okay, buddy. Hang in there, you know, kind of thing. Um, but the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, the dream to be, uh, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation to, to thine enemies. In other words, this is not good for you and it's good for your enemies, this dream. The tree, verse 20, that thou sawest which grew was and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of heaven had their habitation. Now, let me just pause for a second. Um, one thing that you should be aware of in the Bible, there's kind of a funny thing about trees and birds. And it's not, you know, completely all the time, but did you notice like there, there's good birds and bad birds in the Bible? But most of the time, fowls of the air, with the exception of the dove, pretty much, um, is, is always something evil. The typology in the Bible, um, when you talk about the fowls of the air, it almost always is something evil. And like when Jesus talked about the parable of the mustard seed and it grew into a tree, um, a lot of people read that and, and the birds of the air can come and land in the tree in the, in the parable that Jesus told. A lot of people, oh, how wonderful, a mustard tree growing into a seed, but a tree. But do you know that a mustard seed was not supposed to grow into a tree? That's like a weird amalgamation of something that shouldn't have happened. And then the fowls of the air end up landing in the tree. 
And the, the, the typology there is probably the church itself. And, and the idea is not a good thing. There's been sermons I've heard about how just let the mustard seed be planted and the tree, church grows and people will come and land on the tree. I'm not sure that's the imagery that's being talked about there. It's more like this, the church, the church <clears throat> growing into something that it shouldn't be. And then the evil one, Satan, remember the, the birds of the air, they're the ones that came and plucked up the seed of the word. When the sower sowed the seed, the, the fowls of the air came and ate the seed of the word. Well, those same fowls are landing in the branches of this weird tree that's not supposed to be a tree at all. Um, and so you, you have to kind of watch those images. It's funny how in some places the tree can be a negative thing. Um, interesting, Jesus is said to have died on the tree. That's a language that, that uh, Peter uses and also in the Old Testament, cursed be him, the one who's hung on a tree. Um, there's, a, there's actually a curse associated with the tree which becomes the cross but it's the fowls of the air oftentimes, it's the evil. So this imagery of trees and stuff, you kind of have to be careful with it. The Bible oftentimes puts that in the real negative as far as biblical typology. Are you with me on that? That's important, just kind of a heads up, unless it's a dove, which is a type of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes the birds of the air are a type of evil, actually. So, so here's Nebi, uh, you know, it says, the tree that you saw, which grew and strong, um, you know, whose leaves were fair, uh, and, and it says the branches where the fowls of heaven made their habitation. Verse 22, it is thou, O king, you're this tree. Um, you're this tree that has grown and become strong for thy greatness is grown and reaches to the heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a, a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew, down, hew the tree down, cut it down and destroy it. Yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with the band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field and let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field until seven times pass over him. Now we'll talk about the seven times in just a second, what that means. But this tree is gonna be cut down and what's gonna be left? A stump. And it's gonna be wrapped and banded with brass and iron. Uh, does anybody remember what is brass a type of in the Bible? Judgment. Judgment. <clears throat> this is God judging Nebuchadnezzar uh, in, a, in a certain sense by cutting him down. <clears throat> but does this kill the tree? Well, as it turns out, the answer seems to be no. There's a stump left. Uh, some trees, by the way, have you ever cut them down only to have them grow again? Uh, I've got a stump in my backyard that I cut down a few years ago and it's growing again. Uh, and I'm gonna have to like, cut it down again because I'm an anti-tree guy. Uh, no, just, just kidding, just kidding. No, um, but, but it's funny how trees do that. But the stump is left and it's banded with, with brass, which is judgment um, until seven times. And, and the tree is gonna lay there in the dew. Uh, so what's all that mean? Well, verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and uh, they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the, the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Um, your margin, some of your margins say, or a healing of thine error. You've been erroneous. You've made mistakes as a king and you've been brutal. Time to be nice. Break off your sins and show kindness and mercy to the poor that it might be a lengthening of your tranquility. In other words, you'll be at peace if you, if you break off your sins. Daniel gives him sort of this challenge where he might be able to pull up from this judgment that's doom, the doom that's coming. 
But, but we'll see what Nebi does with this in a second. But have you ever had a friend or someone that you, you sense they're like in this position where Nebuchadnezzar is? Man, they're just in rebellion against God and they're walking contrary to God. And, and they're, but they're doing really well, but they're troubled. I think some of you parents, you've had teenagers who say, yeah, shine you, mom, dad, in your Christian faith. And you see them go off into the worldliness and do their thing and, and your heart breaks for them. And you're like, break off your sins, follow the Lord. It's one of the toughest scriptures, you know, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sometimes kids have to go out and learn, even though you did your best to teach them the truth and show them that, that Jesus is the way. But sometimes some people have to go out and learn the hard way. But Nebuchadnezzar's kind of at that place. And you almost get this fatherly Daniel coming along saying, come on, Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins. Show mercy to the poor. It's kind of interesting because um, that's, that's something that we should be careful about. In our wealth and all of our comforts, one of the things we should do that's kind of uh, a breaking off of sin is to make sure and not forget to show kindness to poor people. Um, we, you know, we live in a culture where it's kind of like, oh, poor people, just get a job, you know? And we have this attitude like, well, if you're poor, it's your own fault. Um, you know, it's time to, you know, get a job and, and, and God helps those who help themselves. Does anybody know what, where, what, what verse of the Bible that's in? It's in the Quran. wrong book. Um, it doesn't say it exactly like that, but it says it's something like, you know, uh, Allah will only uh, intervene when you step up and do it yourself first or something like that. Um, and then it was Benjamin Franklin that made that phrase really popular. God helps those uh, who in 1736, uh, Benjamin Franklin said that. And then your grandma told you it was in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> good book says God helps those. And she really just wanted to get your chores done, that's all. Um, that's what she was trying to do. But um, one of the most misquoted scriptures, I'm so thankful the opposite is true. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's what God actually does. Because you and I, even our best works are filthy rags and you cannot save yourself. You cannot do anything to add length of your days and help yourself, but you can lean on the Lord. And with God, all things are possible. It's, it's, it's actually quite the opposite than God helps those who help themselves. Now I understand there's a side of that that is true. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, the Bible says. So there is a side of, of being responsible and all that the Bible does teach, but Man, I'm so thankful overall, the overarching theme of the Bible is that God helps those who don't and can't help themselves. So, you know, um, the idea of Nebuchadnezzar helping the poor, this is what Daniel says, this is the remedy. I wonder if some of us need to maybe consider how we can help the poor better than we do. Because man, Jesus was always seen helping the poor. The New Testament tells us over and over again that we need to care about the poor. Pure and undefiled defiled religion, James says, is you know, caring for the widows and the orphans and, and uh, doing what we can to help them. That's what true you know, religion, undefiled is. And uh, we gotta watch out for that. I, I wonder if Daniel would say to us, break off your sins, Athey Creek and help give show mercy to the poor, you know? I wonder if, if he would implore us in the same way. But all that to say, he says, man, break off your sins uh, and follow the Lord. Now, um, uh, as it turns out, Nebuchadnezzar um, hears this, and so what, is he do, what does he do with this? We don't know for sure, um, but we know that there's a gap of time now. Um, it says in verse 28, all this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar, um, at the end of 12 months. Okay, so, so what happened in the 12 months? Uh, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us. But after Daniel tells him this, 12 months went by. Could it be that, Dan, that Daniel convinced Nebuchadnezzar to be kind to the poor for 12 months? Could it be that Nebuchadnezzar's like, ooh, man, I gotta watch my P's and Q's. Uh, that's a horrible you know, fate getting chopped down and becoming a beast of the field. And, and he was troubled by this, but maybe the troubled heart lasted only for a while. And, and maybe it took 12 months for him to say, yeah, I don't know if that was really true. Maybe, maybe Daniel's just wrong. Um, see, that's human nature, isn't it? You know, we know we get convicted in our hearts from something the scriptures tell us. And we think, man, I gotta stop doing that. And I gotta start. And for 12 months, man, you're successful. I'm no longer gonna do that. I'm gonna, for 12 months, man, how long do you go before you get right back into the same old rut 
of the bad attitude or the prideful arrogance or the sinful uh, t- tendency or addictions. You know, the things that the Lord long ago told you, break off your sins. And you said, okay, I'm gonna do it because it was enough to wake you up and shake you up. But how long does it take you to kind of get back to just normal? It seems to me like Nebuchadnezzar, it took him 12 months and he just couldn't hold it any longer because you almost see what happens here. He bursts out with this thing we started to look at on Sunday with an absolute arrogance and pride. Um, man, that's something that kind of haunts and plagues us, doesn't it? When you know you shouldn't be doing something, but you kind of find yourself doing it anyway, uh, even after a time. Well, 12 months it took. All this, verse 28, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace, or the, the better word there in the, he, uh, the uh, I should say, Aramaic, as he walked in, uh, it's, it's more like he walked upon the palace. He's on top of the palace. Um, uh, it says, he walked upon the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 30, and the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty, oh man, the huge downfall of pride by Nebuchadnezzar the king. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, we see Nebuchadnezzar um, falling, you know, in a horrible way. And we looked at this on Sunday and the last phrase of this story we looked at on Sunday about pride, but here it is, the ugliness raises its ugly head. This is the thing Daniel's saying, break off. You're not all that. Humble yourself before the Lord. The Lord is near, the Bible says, to that, the person who's of a broken and contrite spirit. But he says, nope, the honor of my majesty. And while, verse 31, the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. Man, whose voice was it? Was it the watchman? Was the watchman there watching the angel? Just going, okay, I'm watching. As soon as he said, I alone am the king and my majesty. And the watchman said, okay, Lord, it's time. Time's up, click. Um, and, and again, one of the things we know about God is there is a time's up. We know that's gonna happen in the tribulation with the rapture of the church. There's gonna be a time where God says, time's up. Um, that's pictured here with Nebuchadnezzar. Time's up. The kingdom is departed from thee, verse 32. And they shall drive thee, this watchman or the, the herald is saying, they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen and seven times shall pass over thee till thou know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Whew, what a scene. Um, as I mentioned on Sunday, there's a, there's a psychological condition that happens to people called boanthropy, where people literally become animal-like and they, they, they think they're cows. That's really boanthropy. There's other kinds of, um, you know, versions of people becoming an, animals in their minds. But, you know, there's stories, you'll, you can read about them. Uh, you know, psych, psychology has found, like this one lady tells of a time where she lost her mind and she was uh, walking with a friend and the friend opened a door and said, I'm going to, you know, uh, greet, have you greet your, whole, your new friends. And she opened the door into a barn and there was all the cows. And for years, she thought those cows were her people. And she lived with the cows. Like there's true stories where this actually happened. Uh, kind of interesting enough. And then, then she also had her you know, reasoning come back to her and she wrote about her experience as a cow for years. Uh, like that's happened in several places in the earth uh, in various times. Um, now the part about growing claws and feathers and stuff, I don't know if that literally happened or did his hair get matted and kind of Rastafarian, uh, little dreadlocks or something, I don't know. But uh, it could be just God miraculously. I don't, I don't have a problem with God just saying, bing, okay, you have claws and feathers now. Um, that could have happened too. Um, but uh, as it turns out, it says here he did eat grass. Um, first drug addict of the Bible on grass for seven years. Sorry, that's for you Portland people. Um, uh, so um, 
Now, the, the, before we move on, let's talk about verse 32. And seven times shall pass over thee until thou know the most high. This, this idea of seven times is sort of foreign to us. We're like, seven times what? Um, but this is a phrase that you and I should know. We'll take this moment to sort of prep us for the rest of the book of Daniel because, and the Bible, because there's places in the Bible where the word time means one year, times means two years, and we're also gonna talk about a half time. Um, and we know that this is years. So most scholars agree that Nebuchadnezzar was a cow or whatever this beast is for seven years. When it says seven times passed over him, that means seven years went by. Um, that's, that's the idea. Let me, let me sort of prove that just a little bit. If you would turn to Daniel chapter seven. Let's, let's go ahead in the story just a little bit. In Daniel 7, 25, um, chapter seven, we're gonna, get, we're gonna do some heavy lifting when it comes to Bible prophecy in Daniel chapter seven. Um, but we're gonna talk about the, the, the coming world leader called Antichrist. And he is mentioned in verse 25, Daniel 7, 25. And he, this Antichrist character, shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given unto his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Anybody want to take a stab and guess how long that is? Three and a half years. Those of you that know the narrative, the abomination of desolation is going to happen in the middle of the seven-year period called the tribulation. And Jesus said the, the abomination spoken of Daniel, by Daniel the prophet. And Daniel speaks about it here and other places. But in the middle of the tribulation, three and a half years, he's going to commit that abomination. And that's what this is referring to. Now, flip over to Revelation chapter 13 real quick. Uh, by the way, Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand. We'll see that as we get further in the book. Um, chapter you know, four tonight, easy peasy. Uh, but we, we got some heavy lifting coming uh, when it comes to Bible prophecy and stuff like that, especially in the last six books of, or chapters of Daniel. But in Revelation 13, this is where you can know that when it says the, the time, times, and the dividing of time in Daniel 7, we know that's three and a half years because of Revelation 13. Also talking about <clears throat> the, the Antichrist and the tribulation period, Revelation 13, five. It says there, and there was given unto him <clears throat> Notice there's a reference there. If you have a Bible reference, Daniel 7 is linked to this. There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue for 40 and two months. Um, 1,260 days. How long is that, anybody? Three and a half years. See, Daniel's the one that tells us it's time, times, and the dividing of time, three and a half years. But the book of Revelation clarifies that that's exactly you know, three and a half years to the day, and then the Lord's gonna uh, finish up the tribulation period after that. Um, and that's when the second coming's gonna happen. So it's just, I'm not gonna get into all this stuff about the Antichrist yet, we will soon, but I just wanna show you that when the Bible talks about time, times, and the dividing time, or the phrase time, time, and a half time, it's talking about that three and a half years of the last part of the tribulation. By the way, there's the tribulation period. Anybody know there's a specific name for the last three and a half years? Anybody know what that is? The great tribulation. That's the great part. Um, seven year tribulation. But the, when you hear the great tribulation term, that's talking about the, the last three and a half years, which are gonna be the worst part of the tribulation. Well, back to Daniel four. That's this idea of, the, of um, seven times or seven years will pass over. Now, with all that said, um, you, you can do some interesting work thinking about, boy, why is there seven years of Nebuchadnezzar becoming like an animal? Um, and, you know, I've heard some interesting uh, theories on the correlations, even as we made last week about the fiery furnace being like the tribulation period and the Jews getting through that time and Jesus being seen by the Jews in the fiery furnace, just like Jesus will be seen in the tribulation. We went through a bunch of things that are, are very interesting correlated to chapter three. Some people do similar correlations with chapter four, but the big question is who is Nebuchadnezzar? Some people call him the tribulation saint because he's almost cut down to death, but not quite. The tree gets cut down, he's humbled. He's going through time of judgment, that's the brass, um, but he's not gonna be completely dead. And he's actually gonna be saved in the, in the time of seven years. And, 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 uh, and the question is, how is he saved? He's gonna look up to heaven. 
And that's, that's some people uh, believe that's talking about the tribulation saints um, of the Old Testament and the way that's gonna go down. Um, and there's also some interesting notions about Babylon. In the, in the book of Revelation, tribulation period, there's the religious Babylon, economic Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon, seven years. There's some interesting correlations there that you can make. Uh, and, um, but I, the reason I don't spend a lot of time with that tonight is because I'm not completely sure uh, that I know um, exactly how that all fits together. Probably will as time goes by. And when we're in heaven and we're seeing the tribulation unfold on earth, we'll go, oh, that's what that means. Um, but there's a lot of interesting thought about what, what chapter four actually is uh, uh, typifying there. But anyway, stuff for you to think about at least. Uh, don't send me emails, by the way, with all your theories. There's too many to read when you guys do that. And I know that you're all brilliant and you know all things, but um, I'm just admitting I, I haven't been convinced. I've read a lot of different theories on that and just some interesting stuff. Well, all that to say, he's, uh, he's eating grass for seven years, growing feathers and nails like claws. But then Nebuchadnezzar finishes up his testimony. This, that's the, the bad part, uh, out there chewing the cud with the cows. But verse 34, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now pause for a second. Totally changing his tune. Now he sounds like a real believer. Um, I love that. But there's a phrase here that I can't just leave alone here because it's such a cool phrase and it's an important phrase. I, um, I lifted up my eyes unto heaven. Um, one of the phrases in the Bible that you should note is when people lift up their eyes to heaven, it's always a good thing. Um, but when you lift up your eyes just only so high, that's always a bad thing. You gotta keep lifting your eyes, but don't stop looking at your problems or, or even the enticements of this world or the things you think you've done. Remember, Earlier in the chapter, he was looking at Babylon. He lifted up his eyes to Babylon. Is not this Babylon that I have set up? That was gonna be his downfall. But once he lifted his eyes all the way up to heaven, there's a, there's a beautiful picture there. By the way, uh, in Genesis chapter 13, there's a, um, an interesting lifting of the eyes scenario that I wanna share with you. You can jot it down in your notes. But in, um, in Genesis 13, uh, Abraham's shepherds and Lot's shepherds they're kind of hassling with each other. And if you remember there in Genesis 13, Abraham says, listen, Lot, you know, we're not getting along, let's part ways. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, you, you know, you can go left. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left, you choose. Um, now, now here's the funny thing, if you could sort of uh, talk about this for a second. Um, if, you, uh, if you go, you know, toward, you know, the, the, what I would say the west, um, then you look over here and you see green plains of Jordan fed by the beautiful Jordan River and there's green lush vegetation. If you look to the east, you see sand, rolling, dry, barren desert. And Abraham says, look either way and, and choose which way you wanna go. And, and the Bible says, Lot lifted up his eyes. Let me just read it to you here. It says, um, Lot lifted up his eyes and behold, the, all the plain of the Jordan was well watered and the Lord... Um, was, uh, it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but it was like the garden, uh, even as the Lord liked to the land of Egypt uh, as you come to Zoar. So Lot chose him the plain of the Jordan and journeyed east. So here's the thing, um, Lot chose the beautiful one. Now Abraham lifts up his eyes, but I love it. Lot lifted up his eyes to just the world and said, ooh, green grass. It's a great place to raise cattle. Um, but he didn't say, Lord, is this gonna be a great place to raise kids? Because he ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah over there. That's where he ends up living, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And his family is all but destroyed. And the, sto the story ends with Lot hiding in a cave with his two daughters, having an incestuous relationship with them and them having babies, Ammon and Moab, which became enemies of Israel. And what a horrible story. That was the end of Lot. But Abraham, instead of just lifting up his eyes to the desert, that it was the side he was gonna go to, um, it says, um, um, the Lord says to Abraham, and this is Genesis 13, 14, after Lot was separated from 
God says to Abraham, lift now up your eyes and look. So Abraham's lifting his eyes up to the Lord, but then the Lord says, I'm gonna show you something. And then he says, now look at the desert. See, the key is to look to the Lord. And then the Lord says, now I'm gonna show you the desert. And he says, see all the grains of sand? That's how blessed your people will be. I'm gonna make your nation as many as there are grains of sand. That's how many people you're gonna have uh, in your, uh, you know, the, the family of the Jews. And I will give this land, all the land that you see uh, to thee will I give it to you and to your seed forever. Like, you know, Abraham could have looked and said, I don't want the desert, but he looked up higher to the Lord. I just, I, I like to kind of give you that because it was Nebuchadnezzar's problem looking only to Babylon, only to a situation. But when he finally lifted his eyes to heaven, that's when he had true perspective. I fear there's too many people lifting up their eyes seeing things like vaccination and masking. And they're lifting up their eyes and seeing school problems and, and Portland and Antifa and, and all the problems and stuff. And they're lifting up their eyes and they're seeing this and that and the other thing. Make sure that you're lifting your eyes up to heaven before you move to Texas. <laughs> where it's well watered. Oh wait, Oregon's well watered, uh, hold on. Yeah, watch out where you end up because I'm not saying it's bad if you go to Texas or Arizona or Boise or um, we lost a ton of people. And I think the Lord has called some people to move. But at the same time, it's funny how we, we can lift up our eyes and look at our situations, say, man, I'm out of here. I'm upset by this or that or the other thing. But lift your eyes all the way to heaven. Seek the Lord first and his kingdom. And then all this other stuff will be added to you. I, I worry that we're so reactionary to what we're seeing only lifting up our eyes to the situation, but God wants us to lift our eyes to get true perspective. You gotta seek first the Lord and, and lift your eyes all the way. That, that's, that's what's lacking in Lot. Abraham did it right. Nebuchadnezzar does it wrong. Um, man, God give us wisdom to lift our eyes to heaven. Well, uh, that's what Abraham did. That's what Nebuchadnezzar finally does. He lifts his eyes to heaven, verse 34, and he sees that God is the one is the true God, everlasting God. Um, and then he goes on in verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Remember uh, before we, we saw in chapter uh, um, you know, three, we saw him you know, raise that question, who is it you know, that's gonna deliver you from my hand? in chapter uh, three, uh, verse uh, 15 at the end there. Um, Nebuchadnezzar now says, uh, "Never mind that. Uh, nobody can be saved from his hand because he's the king of kings. This is the perspective Nebuchadnezzar has, but he had to become a beast before he could actually get it. What, what's the Lord gonna have to do with you to get you to where you really understand that God knows what he's talking about and God is uh, everlasting. He's all powerful, all in control. His word is true. Um, hopefully we go a little easier than Nebuchadnezzar. Took him quite a, a, a chore to become a believer. Um, but, but I love what he says. Uh, verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me. Do you get a sense that there's a little different with, he's talking about what's true, but he's not prideful about it. He's restored back to his glory of his kingdom. He's, but, he's, but you don't hear it like this, at least I don't, when it says that his reason came back to him for the glory, he doesn't say, for the glory of my kingdom. He's not saying that. And mine honor and brightness returned to me. He's not saying that. He's saying, we're nothing before God and God returned me to a place of position, prominence, power. But you get a sense that he's humble. See, this is the thing. Um, we don't wanna be falsely humble and say, oh, I have nothing to offer. I'm just a nobody. Because Nebuchadnezzar's not a nobody, but he's got the proper perspective. That's what God wants of you and me is to have a proper perspective, not a falsely humble, oh, I'm nothing and I can't do anything, but a reasonable, uh, accurate view of oneself. That's what the Lord wants for us, to be sober-minded is kind of what the Bible talks about this. So he knows, he's back into that place of power and his glory of his kingdom, but it's a much hum more humble uh, in light of God kind of brightness. He says, mine honor, my brightness return to me and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me and I was established in, in my kingdom and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise 
and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Powerful, man. King Nebuchadnezzar, he finally gets it. Um, and he wraps it up. This is the last thing we hear from old Nebi uh, historically. It's the last thing. He's, he becomes a believer in God and, um, and he says, there's only one God. And I think that's where he becomes a believer in God. Next week, chapter five, we're gonna get into some crazy stuff. The handwriting on the wall and uh, we're gonna see a guy, you know, need some pampers. It's gonna be amazing. Um, so we'll be into that story next, next week. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. This story is such a great reminder of the destruction of pride, the haughty spirit that comes before a fall. Lord, give us just a, a sense of what real humility is about and show us, Lord, how to, to have the right mindset. Lord, I pray that um, so many people in this world who have it seemingly together and everything's flourishing, but we know there's so many people troubled things that they know about themselves, things that they've seen that troubles them. But, but Lord, I pray like Daniel that we would come and, and speak the truth into people's lives. Give us that same compassion that Daniel had on Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, we see this world and, and their sin and the mistakes they're making and, and we often turn to insulting them or thinking that they're a bunch of losers. But Lord, like Daniel, I pray that we'd be astonished when we see the destruction that's coming. And, and instead of relishing in that, help us to be grieved over that and help us to speak truth like Daniel, to break off sin and, and to humble and to be merciful to the poor, Lord, and, and just to speak that truth into people's lives. Give us wisdom, Lord. And I pray, Lord, tonight, as we've gone through this chapter, that you just continue to give us understanding and that this chapter would just continue to speak to us by your spirit, that we continue to learn as the time goes by that we'd see the, the truth more and more as we walk in your ways, Lord. So bless this group that's here, that's watching online tonight. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.